You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. If you would like to find out more information about our church, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen, all right. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Judges chapter 16? We are going to continue our series this morning through the book of Judges. If you're new with us, my name is Clint, one of the pastors on staff at the church and grateful for the opportunity to be here with you. We are nearing the end of this book here in the Old Testament, this book of Judges. This morning, we're going to finish up our month-long conversation on this guy named Samson, really the last judge that we see in this book. Um, and for whatever reason, Samson gets four chapters in this book. When we see other guys, like uh, back in January, we talked about a guy named Shamgar, a judge who got one verse, and all we knew about Shamgar was that he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goat, right? And so you fast forward a few hundred years and here we are with Samson still dealing with the, the Philistines, but for some reason he gets four chapters. And Bill, a couple weeks ago, mentioned that um, these four chapters aren't four different stories, they're actually one story. Um, and so you could preach all four of these chapters in one sermon, but we chose instead to kind of deep dive, to slow down and look at the story of Samson in a different way so that we can um, understand a little bit about what's going on here because of how relevant we think this story is for us. And so we're going to finish this conversation this morning. Before we do that, I want a, a quick word about the next couple weeks as we finish up this book. We have five chapters to go. So next week, we're going to cover chapters 17 and 18. And then the week after that, on June 2nd, we're going to cover 19, 20, and 21, which is a whole bunch of content. And because of that, we're not going to be able to hit every single verse. And so we encourage you in the next few weeks, if you would, take some time to read through that. If you're taking notes, next week, we're going to cover 17 and 18. If you want to read through that, in the following week, we're going to cover 19, 20, and 21. All right, so as we turn our attention to the book of Judges, what we see here is that this is a, a, a period or, or time span for the people of God that covers 350 years. And so after the leadership of Joshua, all the way up to the kings, after um, Moses uh, leads the people of God out of slavery and in, uh, from Egypt and Jesus, or Joshua rather, leads them into the promised land, God's people are given this land that they're supposed to occupy. They're given this land, they're supposed to live as, we talked about a few weeks ago, set apart lives. They're supposed to live distinct lives different than the world around them. And the reason why is not because that they're better than the world around them, but they, they're supposed to point to the reality that God knows how life works best. That following after God and living our lives in obedience to the commands of God is the way that life works best, but that's not what they do. They don't live distinct lives instead of pointing to the to the world, the reality that God knows how life works best, what happens is they immediately begin to kind of assimilate into the world, assimilate into the culture around them. They adopt the patterns and the lifestyle of the people around them rather than living these set apart lives the way that God has established for them. And so there's these two kind of repeated phrases that kind of define Israel's rebellion against God that we see in the book of Judges that we've seen over and over and over again. The first one is that the people forget the Lord their God, right? It starts with them not remembering who he is, not remembering what he's done. They forget the Lord their God. And then it says that because of that, they do whatever is right in their own eyes. So we had this progression that happens where they forget the Lord their God and they do what was right in their own eyes. And the reason why the book of Judges is so relevant for us today is because much of what we deal with, much of the difficulty and the pain in our lives has to do with really these same categories. Because if we're honest, how easy is it to forget the Lord? 
Like how, how easy is it in your life of being hurried and busy and moving about your day? You wake up, you get the kids ready, you get breakfast going, you get your coffee, whatever, take care of the dogs. If you got crazy dogs like me, like that's a big part of my morning. And then you're moving through your day. How far into your day do you get before you have the thought, oh yeah, I'm not the center of my world. God exists. Right? That's easy. I know it's easy for you because it's easy for me. I can do, I can forget the Lord while I'm prepping a sermon. So I know as you go about your day, it's just as difficult for you. And Judges is a crash course on what happens when you live your life this way like God doesn't exist. It's a 101 on sin and idolatry and the inevitable consequences that come when you live your life pretending like everything is fine on the outside when you know on the inside you're hanging on by a thread. This is what Judges is doing for us. It's what it's telling us about what happens in life when you live like God doesn't exist. And so we've seen this cycle so far in the book of Judges. The people forget the Lord their God. They end up enslaved to their enemies and they cry out to him. And God in his mercy, he sends a deliverer, a rescuer for them to deliver them out from their oppression. And then we get to this cycle with Samson, which is the seventh time through, but it's different. This time around, the people, they do forget the Lord their God. They do end up enslaved to the Philistines, but they don't cry out for help. This is where the cycle breaks down. And the reason why they don't cry out for help is because they've become so familiar with their slavery that they are comfortable with that. They get so familiar with their sin and so familiar with their slavery that they're comfortable there and they don't cry out for help because they don't want out. And so God raises up Samson. Chapter 13 is all about this expectation of, of Samson's life and his birth. And it says, the Bible says, Samson's mom was barren, right? That she couldn't have kids. And so one day, the angel of the Lord shows up and says to him, hey, behold, you're barren. You have not born children, which if we can just stop there, thank you, Captain Obvious, okay? Like having walked through infertility with my wife, I know for a fact she did not need to be reminded that she wasn't a mother. That she viewed almost everything in her life through that loss, through that sense of I'm not what I want to be. And yet the angel of the Lord, which we talked about before, is God himself shows up and says, behold, you're barren. You have not born children. And he says this, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And the reason why he says it this way is because for the good news to be all it's supposed to be, we have to first establish the bad news. Right, so think about it this way. Finding out that you're pregnant for the second time, for the third time, that's good news, right? That's a reason for us to celebrate. But what happens when you've waited your whole life longing to be a parent and then that good news comes? That's better news, isn't it? And so what's happening here is establishing the bad news makes good news better. We'll talk about that more here in a bit. But if you know your Bible, anytime barren women are told that they're going to have kids, good things happen. So the angel of the Lord says, behold, you're going to conceive, you're going to bear a son. And so what you expect to happen here is you're reading through the book of Judges, there's this spiral, this huge fade to black in the people of God. And you get to chapter 13 and you go, this is it. There's this expectation building in the life of Samson. He's going to be the deliverer, the judge that the people of God have been waiting for. He's going to bring them out of slavery to the Philistines and he's going to set them apart and lead them how to shake loose of living like God doesn't exist and that they're doing what's right in their own eyes. This is the expectation that the author of Judges is trying to draw us into. And yet that's not what we see happen. In chapter 14, starting in verse 1, it says this. And Samson went down to Timnah, 
And there at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines, and then he came up and he told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines, and now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives that you have to go and take a wife from the Philistines? And he says this, but Samson said to his father, you get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And this is so tragic that we can't afford to miss this, that not only have the people of God forgotten him, even his deliverer is doing what's right in his own eyes. That he isn't driven by a motivation or a desire to be obedient to God. He is driven by whatever seems right to him in the moment. And that is a dangerous place to be. Whatever feels right in the moment, regardless of circumstance, regardless of consequence, regardless of the collateral damage that it might cause in my own life and the people around me, I'm going to do it because I want it. And so far in Judges, what we've seen is what happens for the people of God when they live this way. Like on a, on a corporate level, on a, on a national level, despite God's continued mercy in raising up these judges and delivering his people, they re repeatedly forget the Lord and they end up right back where they started. Only each time it's worse. Because this is what sin does. It never stays the same. Each time they move farther and farther and farther away from God and they become more and more comfortable in their sin. So much so that now they're not even crying out to be saved. And Samson's no different. I think this is the reason why he gets four chapters and Shamgar gets one verse. Because Samson is a personal account of what happens, what we've seen on a national level for the people of Israel, but he is a case study on what will happen. Not what might happen, but what will happen if you allow sin to go unchecked in your life. That's what Samson is. But this is not a chipper sermon. This is a story of what happens when you allow sin to go unchecked in your life. And the point is, no one is exempt from this. It's not a corporate reality. It's not just an individual for reality for some people, for the really bad ones, for the jerk at your, at your work, or for the guy who lives on the street, the get off my lawn guy. It's not just for those people, right? It's for every single person. It's a reality for us that sin is a pervasive force that affects every single one of us. And if we don't pay attention to it and do something about it, you need both of those. Pay attention to it and do something about it. We're going to end up just like Samson. And so what I'm going to do as we turn our attention to Judges 16 is read this text through, through the lens of a question that says, what can we learn from this about how sin works? What can we learn from this passage of scripture about how sin works? And then secondly, what can we do about it so that we don't make the same mistakes that Samson makes? Because what better way to kick off summer than a sermon on sin, right? And then I've seen several of you lean over and say, I told you we should have gone to the beach this weekend, right? So let's look at this together, verse 4, chapter 16. It says, after this, he, Samson, loved a woman in the valley of Sork, that is in Philistia, whose name was Delilah. So when the Bible says after this, what's happening is it's, it's connecting what's about to happen to what just happened in Samson's life. And so if you were here last week, we read about how Samson went to Gaza in verse 1 to 3. That is a Philistine capital city, okay? And there in Gaza, he saw a prostitute. And so over the story of Samson's life, we've seen he struggled with this before. So he intentionally goes to Gaza knowing that he's had a problem there with Philistine women. This is like someone with a gambling addiction volunteering to go on a business trip to Vegas. Like he's seen how this plays out in his life before. This is an alcoholic in deciding to go to his favorite bar. 
He's seen it played out before, but still he hasn't learned. Or maybe he has learned and he doesn't care. And surely you've been there, right? After a long day or a long week or a hard season of your life and you know how it goes down when you call that group of friends, but you call them anyway because you want it to happen. You know what, what's going to happen when you stop by the store or when you do whatever. You, you know when you feel yourself gravitating towards sin. And if we're honest, oftentimes we want it. Again, Samson saw something that seemed right in his own eyes. He has lived his whole life, decades of being driven by the flesh, by whatever felt right in the moment. Not only that, he's grown so arrogant in his sin that he feels invincible. He's thinking, I am so strong, the Philistines can't touch me. There's nothing that they can do to me. So in that first couple of verses there, what we see with Samson is that he's with this woman, this Philistine prostitute, and all the while the Philistine rulers are scheming around him thinking, this is how we're going to get him. This is how we're going to capture him. And the Bible says that at midnight, Samson doesn't just escape, which he could have done, but he goes and he rips the gates off the city and he carries them up a hill for 40 miles. Right? He's spiraling deeper and deeper into his sin and yet he's never felt more strong. Never been more brazen. He rips the gates off a city. And so I joked earlier about, hey, what better way to kick off summer than a sermon on sin? But if we're honest, we probably need this more than we think. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, Therefore, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. This word take heed here, 90 times in the Bible, it's translated to seek. So if anyone thinks he's standing, if you think now in this space, in your life, you think you're good. Like you're talking about sin, pastor, I don't really know what you're, what, what, how that applies to my life. The Bible says take heed there. If you think your footing is firm, maybe you need to look again. Maybe you need to see. Take a greater inventory of your life because it's then when you think you're good that you are most susceptible to falling. Verse four says, after this, when Samson felt invincible, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him, see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. So here's the first thing that I want you to see about how sin works is this sin wants to own you. Let me explain. There's a part of this story that I think we tend to miss because the Bible doesn't go into it other than in verse four, it says Samson loved this woman, right? That seems run of the mill for us, only we haven't heard of that yet in his life. We have seen Samson with the ladies up to this point in the story, but nothing about his love. It doesn't even say that he loves the woman who he was gonna marry in chapter 14 but it says he loves Delilah, which means there's some sort of mutual affection in their life. This seemed right in his eyes, that he loved Delilah. They spent time with one another. They enjoyed one another, and people could see it. Right? This is why the Philistine rulers think to themselves, this is how we're going to get him. This is his weak point. And these men go to her, and they offer her a deal. They basically say, we want you to sell out your man, and we're going to make you rich if you do it. And she jumps in on that. But listen to their motivations. In verse 5, they say, seduce him. See where his great strength lies, and then here's why, what you need to see, that we may what? Bind him to humble him. This word bind him, it means to tie someone up. It means to take them prisoner. Several other times in this chapter, we'll see Delilah says to Samson, tell me how you might be bound 
How can you be taken prisoner? And this is what sin wants with us. I think one of the biggest lies Christians believe is that sin is just something we do. Every once in a while, right? It's just this rogue action that takes place in our lives. And sure, we all sin, but ours isn't that big of a deal. And we are still ultimately the ones who are in control. We could stop if we really wanted to. This is the lie that circles around in our head, but the reality is sin isn't just something we do. It wants to own us. It wants to take us prisoner and dictate our every action, right? It is a master seeking to take rule and reign in our lives, and ultimately sin is not just something we do. It is worship, only it isn't worship of God who alone deserves it, which means it's worship of something or someone else, which makes it idolatry. Sin isn't just breaking a rule. It is bending the knee to another God. It's offering ourselves to something or someone else. And this isn't, this isn't limited to the book of Judges. This is what we see in our own lives and throughout history for the people of God. That when we get a taste of freedom, we get a taste of what life is like under following after the obedience of God and do, living our lives the way he says, the way it works best. We get a taste of that, but something in us lures us back. And so God rescues his people from underneath this oppression in Egypt and they get right up against the Red Sea and what do they say? We should have just stayed. It wasn't so bad. And God in their mercy rescues them again and they get in the wilderness and life starts to get hard again and they begin to grumble to Moses and they say, did you just bring us out here to die? We were better off as slaves in Egypt. Something lures us back to that especially when life gets difficult, that we think the convenience of compromise is better than the cost of obedience with God. And underneath every sin is this belief in this Genesis 3 lie that we don't need him. We don't need God. We think we're better off without him. And when we sin, what's happening, even though we think it's just some small action, just some small thing that we have under control, when we rebel against God, we are making an accusation against the God of the universe that we know better what's going to satisfy us than he does. That he is not powerful enough or that he is not good enough to orchestrate our world the way that we want it to be done. And so we squeeze him off the throne of our lives in an attempt to take the control for ourselves. And we think that in that we are free, but in reality we are being owned by our sin. And again, it's not that big of a deal. We could stop if we wanted to, but time and time again, we run back to the bottle, back to the substance, back to the food, back to the relationship, back to your control, back to your worry. All the while, we are enslaved by our fear, believing that we can do a better job of taking care of ourselves than God can. It is a pervasive force. Sin is not just something we do. It is working to take control in our lives, and oftentimes... What we do when the sin that we are walking in causes pain in our lives, instead of letting go of that thing, we grip onto it tighter. We run back to the thing that cost us pain in the first place, and this is how addiction works. This is the cycle of sin. It's not just something we do. It's something trying to take control in our lives. Look at verse 7. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. And now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber. She said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings with a thread of flax 
when the touch is fire, so the secret of his strength wasn't told. And then again, verse 10, Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you've mocked me. You told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, Well, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak like any other man. Same thing happens again. Skip ahead. Verse 13, Delilah said to Samson, Until now you've mocked me. You told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. She said, If you were to weave the seven locks of my head with the web, you fasten it tight with a pen, then I shall become weak like any other man. He's getting closer and closer and closer to the source of actually his strength. And all the while, he's just playing these games with her, right? Happens again, verse 15. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You see what sin's trying to do? You've mocked me these three times. You've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, it's so persistent. It urged him. It says this, his soul was vexed to death. That word means annoyed. His soul was annoyed to death. And he told her all his heart. He said, a razor's never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then... My strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Real quick, how does this happen? Like what is possibly going on here? Surely at some point, Samson wakes up and sees what's happening. Does he not have a single friend who can pull him aside and say, hey buddy, none of my business. Think she might be trying to kill you, you know? (laughs) Like you gotta have somebody in your life pull you there but this is the second thing we learn about sin and how it works sin will always lead to compromise always you cannot tell me Samson doesn't understand exactly what's going on here maybe he doesn't see it the first time but what about the second time the third time she tries to tie him up and lets men who want to kill him hide in her bedroom like surely Samson would, would, would want to have some serious relationship conversations right like hey D We had a good thing going, you know? I was really hoping this was gonna work out between me and you, but you keep trying to let people kill me. Like, might be a deal breaker. At some point, you have to have a conversation there. But let me just say this, there's, we wanna read this like he didn't see it. There's no way he didn't know what was going on. And the point is, he didn't care. He, his sin had led him to compromise. He made a decision that his relationship with her was more valuable than anything else in his life. And at that point, it didn't matter what was called for him to sacrifice, he would lay it down on the altar. He had to. This is clear in the story. That she'd asked him before, how can he be bound? And he plays with her a little bit because he doesn't want her to leave him. But he also doesn't want to tell her the truth. But in verse 15, she calls his bluff. She puts the relationship on the line. She says, how can you say, I love you? Your heart's not with me. So he has no choice. His idol called for him to make a sacrifice and he had to lay it down, even God. He had no choice but to compromise. And friends, your sin is asking the same thing from you. It will always lead to compromise. This is why my guess is every single one of us in this room, or at least the the vast majority of us, have things in our past. When we think back on them, when your mind goes to that place, you think, how could I have done that? Every single one of us have places and memories in our past. We think, how could I have been so blind? Why couldn't I see it? And the answer is because that is what sin does. It blinds us to reality. It forces us to make compromises we never, or we swore we would never make. I'll go this far, but I'll never go this far. But then what happens? The progression. It leads us down the line. It is seeking to take control of our lives, and it wants you to make compromises. 
And let me ask you this. If every single person in this room can point to a, a moment in their life where they thought, how could I have been so blind? How arrogant would we be today to think that it couldn't be happening to us? So I was out the last few Sundays. Um, I was visiting a friend of mine who lives in South Asia. Um, and me and a few, a few of my other buddies have been talking about going to visit him for a couple of years now. Um, and I kind of just let them plan the trip. And I just said, hey, I'm in. Just let me know what I need to pay. And so we jump in on it. Um, and so part of what they decided we would do together was go on this trek up a mountain in the Himalayas, okay? Um, I don't know what's different between trekking and hiking. I think it just means it's longer and it's really hard as you trek. If you go on a hike, it could be a good time. If you go on a trek, it's not. Um, and what I learned is there's two types of people in the world. There's the type of person who said, hey, I just trekked up a mountain in the Himalayas, and you think, oh, that's awesome. And there's the other kind of person who says, that sounds awful, right? And I'm in that group, just so you know. I'm in the second group. Um, nevertheless, I found myself on the side, on the other side of the planet, about to spend five days trying to get to the top of this mountain. And here's what you need to know about this hike or trek, is we get there, we spend a few days acclimating to the altitude, and we hear some people talking in town about how this, this last season, well, this last season was this, the most snow they've ever had. Not like in the last 10 years, last ever. Since they've been recording snow, However, they record snowfall. This is the most they've ever had. And so we start to get a little worried, you know, me most of all, because I'm the only one of the five of us going who's in the, the second group. This sounds awful. Everyone else is like, this is amazing. And here I am. Um, and so anyways, we start to get worried. My buddy calls our guide and there's a little bit of a language barrier. And he goes, hey, we heard there's a lot of snow. He's like, yep, a lot of snow, a lot of ice. And uh, we're like, well, do we need any special gear? He's like, no, no special gear. We're good. It's like, are you sure? Because it's our last chance to acquire any special gear. You said all we needed was boots and we're going up there. And so hopefully we're good. He's like, yeah, we're fine. And then my buddy was like, what about crampons? I don't even know what crampons are, okay? <laughs> crampons are apparently metal spikes that you attach to your boots so you can walk up snow and ice. And so my buddy's like, hey, do we need those? And the guy's like, ah, uh, maybe. Um, how about this? He says, I'll just get some for you. And we're like, okay. We had no choice at this point but to trust this guy, all right? Anyways, we start on our journey. We meet this guy like an hour from where the trailhead is. And at some point we ask him, hey, did you bring those crampons? Do you want us to carry them? He goes, oh, yeah, we don't need those. Okay. Um, whatever you say, right? And right after that, we get to the trailhead. And there's this, it's a military checkpoint, which at first is comforting, right? They, they, you have to pull out your passport and show them who you are, identify yourself as a human and, and your passport. And you get to say, hey, I'm going up on this mountain. And at first that's comforting because you're like, man, this is official. And then you realize the whole reason they're doing this is in case I don't come off this mountain. They can identify who's up there. Um, hey, is that his body? I don't know. We got this number here. It must be him. Anyway, we come up to the checkpoint. Our guide stops us real quick. After he just said, hey, we don't need the crampons. He goes, hey, when you get to the guy, make sure you, you don't tell him we're going to Moon Peak. Like, wait, wait, wait a minute. No. And all my other, but I'm like, that's great. I don't want to go to Moon Peak. That's fine. Let's just hike. <laughs> all my buddies like, no, 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 no. We paid you to take us to Moon Peak. You're taking us to Moon Peak. He's like, yeah, calm down. It's okay. We're going to Moon Peak. Just don't tell them we're going to Moon Peak. And we're like, why? He's like, because we don't have permission. So we don't need crampons and we don't have permission. That's what you need to know about this hike. So on summit day, um, we hiked for 13 hours. Started at 4 a.m. 4 in the morning, and it got sun light out pretty quickly after that. But it was the way the sun was coming up. We were facing this peak. We had hiked for four days already at this point. We get to the peak, 
and we're going up, and the sun's coming up the backside of it, so it's light, you can see, but it's also shady, right? And it's windy, it's cold, it's almost below freezing, I think, I don't know, I didn't have a thermometer on me, but it was cold. Um, and so we're using these trekking poles, and we're working our way at the top, and, and no joke, we needed crampons. I mean, the whole hike at the top was them carving with little axes footholds in this glacier as we make our way up this mountain, and we're roped to each other, and we're using these trekking poles, and because of that, I've told this before, I hate cold, okay? Um, when it's 55 degrees, my extremities are so far from my heart, my hands start going numb, okay? <laughs> it's below freezing, and we're trekking pole on our way up this mountain, and so my hands are completely numb. And I'm like, I'm not gonna make it. I'm looking up and I go, I can't go there. I'm looking down, I'm going, I can't go there, I'm stuck. This is it, this is the end, that's what I'm thinking. And then our, and I'm like, hey, God, we need a break. He said, let us know if you need a break. I'm like, I need one. And he goes, see that, the sun had come up to a point where you could see one spot on a rock where the sun was shining. He was like, we're going there, we'll take a long break. And I was like, yes, we are, okay? So I made it to that point. We get to the sun, little sun spot, and I, um, I, t- I like, struggle to take my gloves off because my hands are numb. I get them off and the sun hits my hands and I kid you not, it started this like 10 minute process of such intense burning I've never experienced before in my life that just my hands were numb and so when the sun hit them, it was the blood rushing back into my fingers right before, you know, whatever happens there when you lose like extremities. That's the moment I was at and the blood was rushing back into my hands. Man, it was a super humbling experience. 15,000 feet in the air struggling to breathe, looking out at what God created, the Bible says, by he just spoke it into existence, okay? It was humbling for that reason. It was also humbling because I look over at one of our guides who was 25 years older than me. He had like heads on, basically, <laughs> that he wrapped in plastic bags so his feet would get wet. Then he wrapped that in burlap and he's running up the mountain carving little holes for us. And I was, I'm dying on the way up there and I look over at him and I'm trying to catch my breath and get some water. He's smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Like, one of the most humbling experiences in my life. But here's, here's the point, Nelda. It was more painful for me to go into the sun and allow the sun to hit my hands than it was to stay numb. And the point in all of that is this, that the way to our freedom from sin will hurt sometimes more in the beginning that the cost of our freedom is letting go of that which enslaves us. And many of us in this room, we are walking in sin now that we will look back on and we will think to ourselves, how could I have been so blind? And the reason why is because in the moment, it seems like the convenience of compromise is easier for us than the cost of obedience to God. We just think, I'd rather stay numb. I don't wanna mess things up. I don't wanna lose the relationship. I don't wanna cause any trouble. Things aren't that bad. I don't want them to get any worse. And there are signs that we're doing this. There are red flags that come up in our lives that indicate that this is what we are walking in. And one of those is if someone asks about a certain part of your life, we get real defensive. We start trying to justify why we're doing what we're doing. Things like, you don't know my situation. What's the big deal? I'm not hurting anyone. You don't know what I'm going through. Or we try to point fingers at other people's failures to cover our own insecurities. Who are you to try to call me out? Guys, sin isn't just breaking a rule, it wants to own you and it will always lead you to compromise. And so Samson gives in and he does what he swore he would never do and he tells Delilah his secret. Then look what happens next, verse 18. When Delilah saw, he told her all his heart. She sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again for he has told me his heart. And then 
they came up to her, they brought the money in their hands and she made him sleep on her knees and she called a man, had him shave off the locks of his head and she began to torment him and his strength left him, verse 20. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He woke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free, but he did not know the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he grounded the mill in prison. Verse 23, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer great sacrifice to Dagon their God. Verse 24, when the people saw him, they praised their God. They saw Samson for they said, our God has given us our enemy. Verse 25, and when their hearts were merry, they called out to Samson that he may entertain us. So they called him out of the prison and entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. So the Philistines' plan works, right? Delilah gets Samson's secret. They capture him, but they don't just kill him. They want to play with him first. They want to humiliate him. They gouge out his eyes. They chain him up to grind at the prison. They force him. They parade him around as entertainment. They mock him and they laugh at him. They bring him as low as they can in an attempt to not just hurt him physically, but to break him mentally and emotionally. And the reason why they don't just kill him is because they want to destroy him. They want to completely tear him down, ruin him in every way. And in the same way, the last thing I want you to see about how sin works is that your sin wants to destroy you. Not just kill you, not just make you have a bad day, but to tear you down completely. I said earlier, one of the biggest lies Christians believe about sin is it's not that big of a deal. It's not hurting anyone. We've got it under control. The problem with that is the Bible says the complete opposite. 1 Peter 5 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, your enemy, the sin that's in you prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. James 1, but each person, when he's tempted, when he's lured, he's enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. And then John 10, Jesus talking, he says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life. You, my followers, might have life and have it abundantly. Your sin, no matter how small you might think it is or how under control you believe it to be, it wants to destroy you. And if you don't do something about it, it will. Sin inevitably comes with a progression. It never stays the same. James lays it out. It starts by being lured, enticed by our own desires, and then it conceives to sin, and that sin leads us to death. It is a poison, a cancer in us, and if we don't do something about it, it's gonna choke the life out of us. And so you're thinking right now, we get it. Sin is bad. Get us to the good news, preacher. But like I said, the reason why Samson gets four chapters instead of one verse is because we're supposed to not move into that too quickly. For the good news to be good, we have to first establish the bad news. And the bad news is we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. It exists in every single one of us. It's not just something we do from time to time. It is a master gaining ground on us, seeking to take control of our lives. It is incessant. It is a lion prowling around, trying to devour us, and it won't stop until it gouges out your eyes, puts you in chains, and forces you to come out to entertain it as it mocks and laughs at you. And if you think that's bad, it gets worse because the deliverer of God's people in Judges 16 is right there with us. He's the one in chains. Paul in Ephesians 2 describes it this way. You were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind dead in our sin, completely lost and hopeless to find the way out of the mess that we put ourselves in. But praise be to God that it doesn't stop there. That verse four, it continues on. When we were dead, while we were dead in our trespasses, children of wrath, following the passions of our flesh, doing whatever seemed right in our eyes. We were the point where we are least deserving of the mercy of God, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. We have to first establish the bad news for the good news to be good. We keep reading the story. Verse 26, Judges 16, Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men. All the lords of the Philistines were there. Verse 28, and Samson called to the Lord and he said, oh Lord God, please remember me and strengthen me only this once that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. So at Samson's lowest point, his enemies mock him and laugh at him. He does something he'd never done before. He prays to God and asks for help. And if you notice, it isn't a perfect prayer of repentance. He's still consumed with himself. He says, God, remember me that I might be avenged for my eyes. And yet, despite the selfishness of Samson's prayer, God hears him. And in his mercy, verse 29, Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight on them. Verse 30, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he killed during his life. So despite the fact that many of us grew up hearing the story of Samson and thinking about he's some sort of hero, when you read the story, what stands out is he's far from heroic. Right, in reality, he was selfish, he was arrogant, he was a womanizer, he was driven by his own flesh, he lived his entire life doing whatever seemed right to him in the moment until ultimately sin led to death for him and it cost him his eyes, it cost him his own life. So where does that leave us? It should leave us wanting something more than this out of a deliverer. Leave us wanting a better hero. And again, that is the point of the story. That is the point of the book of Judges, that Samson isn't the hero we want. That even though God hears his prayer in Samson's death, he kills thousands of his enemies. What this should stir in our heart and our minds is that we have a better deliverer in Jesus. And that as he hung on the cross for sins that he didn't commit, he prays to God, just like Samson, but instead of God, avenge me. Instead of God, let me die with the Philistines, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Samson dies so that his, his enemies will die too. Jesus dies so that his enemies can live. That's you and me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God to set us free from pretending like everything is fine when we know we're hanging on by a thread. He dies so that we don't have to pretend like we've got our sin under control when all the while it is gaining ground on us, getting closer and closer to taking us prisoner. And friends, the bad news of sin is worse than we could ever imagine. But the good news of, gospel, of the gospel is greater than we could ever hope. Of the, 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 the good news of what we have in Jesus, that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. 
And Samson lost his life, but you still have yours. So if you're walking in hidden and secret sin, quit pretending that you've got this under control and bring it out into the light. There is a cost associated with letting go of that which enslaves us, but it is easier. It is better for us in the long run than staying numb, living our lives, I'm fine, I got this. I don't need any help, I don't need the break. We walk in transparency as the people of God and so we've been invited because of the grace and the mercy of Jesus to say, I'm not okay and I need Jesus and he's invited me to come to him. Let me pray for us, we'll sing and respond as we go to Jesus this morning. Father, thank you. For the good news of the gospel that we get to remember this morning that even though we don't deserve it, you love us. That our sin is a bigger deal than we ever imagined, but the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ is not too small to save us from our sins. So we pray that you would help us, God, to see this. As we sing and respond, would you be with us this morning? pray in Jesus' name.